It was still late afternoon as we headed back to Detroit with five boxes of Carla's past stuffed into the back seat of her car. Only two of those were the papers we'd come for. The other three were boxes labeled with her dead son's name, which I suspect was the reason for her continued silence. I didn't see any reason to do anything but drive straight through, given we had enough daylight hours ahead of us. Somewhere around four hours after staring out the window at the passing scenery, in complete silence, for a longer period than she'd ever been silent in my presence, Carla turned around in her seat and started rummaging through one of the boxes. She pulled out a stack of paperwork, sat back down in her seat, and started to go through them. By the time we were a half hour outside Detroit, she'd gone through both boxes of paperwork. So you want the good news first or the bad news? Give me the bad news. Mercy Sandoval is ass deep in this mess. Her signature is on every contract, along with Florencio's. There are stacks of emails, and the FEMA trailer thing wasn't even the half of it. They had at least 15 different government contracts. I don't have any way of knowing how many of them they were fudging the accounting on. Not from those papers, but if the government has the only other existing copies, and for some reason they want to shove it all under the rug, it makes sense that Mercy wants to get her hands on them. You think the government wants to shove it all under the rug, huh? I slid over two lanes and merged onto an off-ramp. Carla turned to look at me. You didn't get that vibe from Arecchio? Yes, Carla, I did. But I didn't think you caught that. I'm impressed. Morno, do not make the mistake of underestimating me. I've got skills you haven't even seen yet. She followed this comment by pulling off her coffee-stained t-shirt. I almost ran off the road. Damn, woman, can't you see I'm about to pull into traffic? I tried to avert my eyes from her pink bra, but couldn't because I was about to make a right turn. So what's the good news, I asked, as she turned around and pushed between the two seats to forage in her bag for a fresh shirt. I am in the mood to get just filthy, stinking drunk, preferably where there's loud music and dancing. So, find us a bar that's close to home because I have a feeling we'll be taking a cab tonight. Carla, we've got a bag with almost two million dollars in the trunk and- Wait, how do you know how much money's in that bag? Carla yanked a shirt over her head. Because I counted it at the hotel last night. One million nine hundred and fifty-six thousand, if my accounting was accurate. Well, aren't you a nosy son of a bitch? Carla pulled out a compact and began dabbing at her face. When she had her lipstick decapped and her lips pursed for the application, I jiggled the steering wheel to get her attention. Shall we readdress how we met in the first place? Or can I reference the cliched pot calling the kettle black and call it a day? Carla recapped the lipstick and tossed it into her purse. Well, I'd be happy to address how I traveled all the way across the United States to meet the author of a bunch of cool mystery books, who was and still is, by the way, going through some sort of midlife crisis because he hasn't yet mustered up enough testicular fortitude to finish up his eighth book. Damn if that woman didn't know exactly where to take a jab at any given time. I was working on an appropriate response when she interrupted what was going to be a clever quip regarding her own vaginal disposition. 
Head over to the Amtrak station on Baltimore. They have lockers. I think that's probably the safest place we can store it for the time being. I let her off in front of the station, and ten minutes later she emerged without the duffel bag. When she got back in the car and slammed her door, I put out my hand. Give me the key. I didn't think I left much room for debate, but apparently Carla thought otherwise. No, thank you. I've got it under control. Carla snapped her seatbelt into place. Define under control. I pulled back into traffic and garnered twin horn assaults from two vehicles that appeared to take issue with the Honda's lack of speed. Carla pulled up her shirt and used a thumb to slide the waistband of her pants down enough so I could see the key pinned to her underwear at the hip. Satisfied? I shrugged. It's your money. We ended up on 2nd Avenue at the Bronx Bar, a divey little number with a jukebox that was playing way too loud and a hipster crowd that became predictably more drunk over the course of the night. There were a couple of highlights. Two hours in, I suggested Carla eat something because after one Long Island iced tea, she'd gotten all loose in the lips and the hips and began flirting with the grumpy bartender for long enough that I had to remove her from the stool and find a seat across the crowded room. When her dill soup came, Carla proceeded to consume it through a straw while offering loud commentary on the cutthroat pool game going on within shouting distance. Needless to say, this garnered more attention than I was comfortable with. Because I was playing babysitter, I had trouble rising to the level of inebriation I usually required to get that fuzzy, all-is-well feeling. I was drinking, just not so much that I couldn't keep track of how much Carla was drinking. The other highlight was a huge biker dude who apparently took it as a challenge when he asked Carla to dance, and she chirped out a hiccup and said, No, sir. These beats were made for walking. When she slid around and offered him a close-up view of said feet, he scooped her out of her chair and carried her to the already flooded dance floor. Actually, it was more a square of parquet flooring, filled with writhing half-wits sweating all over each other to some god-awful-sounding music. Mr. Biker plunked Carla down in a sitting position on a table next to the jukebox, and they had what looked like an animated conversation while he perused the music selections. After he fed quarters into the machine and had made his selections, they remained there. Carla's hands moving in time with her jabbering lips, laughing at whatever he was saying, until his apparent musical choice came on. As soon as the opening strains of Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson singing, If You've Got the Money, I've Got the Time, came on, a collective groan wafted over the bar and the dance floor cleared, save for a few brave stragglers. Mr. Biker stood in the center of the dance floor, looking down at Carla, then took her by the hips. I could tell he was giving her some sort of instruction, based on her confused expression. When she looked down at her feet as they started moving, he chucked her under the chin and pointed to her eyes. What followed was a pathetic two-step lesson, where Carla managed to stomp all over Mr. Biker's feet for a good two minutes before he gave up, still in good cheer, 
and slung her over his shoulder like a sack of Idaho's. As he tapped out a little jig, and bystanders finally got into the ridiculous display, clapping along with the music, Mr. Biker twirled in a circle, slapping Carla's ass to the beat of the music. At one point, she arched her back and put her hands out like she was flying. And I'm sure she was having a grand time, right up until the moment she spewed the remains of her dill soup and Long Island iced tea all over the floor. Her last gagged burble dribbled down the biker's back before he realized what was happening. It turned out to be the most fun I'd had in a bar in a long while, until I got the call. Right around the time Carla went into the restroom to freshen up after her gastronomic display. I answered my cell phone and plugged one ear. Yeah? The voice on the other end was female. Mercedes Sandoval. The last person I wanted to talk to, with Carla now wobbling toward me, clutching a fresh drink in her hand. I distinctly heard the click of the phone going dead over the bartender screaming a hoarse last call from behind the bar. Clearly the woman knew exactly where things stood with the case, but I assumed she wanted a face-to-face to gauge my reaction and to fish around for how much I knew. I suspected she knew exactly what I knew, and this along with the bottle through the window at the bar, was her way of ratcheting up the pressure. I disconnected the call as Carla tripped and wobbled her way toward me, spilling half her drink on the floor and her shoes. Oops. Carla's lopsided grin turned to a frown when I removed the glass from her hand and set it on the table. Hey. That's enough for you, Buttercup. Time to call a cab. Since I had Acme cab service on speed dial... I pressed one button as I grabbed her wrist with my free hand so she couldn't retrieve the drink. After ordering the ride, I pulled her outside and did something I wasn't crazy about doing. I called Muggs at five minutes to two in the morning. He was none too happy about the interruption of his slumber. What? Sorry to do this, but I don't suppose you've got someone who could take a ride with you to the Bronx bar. I need Carla's car moved to a safer location, and neither of us are in any condition to drive. We waited for him on the curb, with Carla playing the disappointed teenager role, informing me no less than 12 times that I'd harshed her mellow. When Muggs pulled up in front of the bar with someone I recognized as one of his regular patrons, Carla clapped like a toddler. Yay, Muggs to the rescue. (laughs) Muggs sized us both up and then sniffed the air between us. Which one of you puked? Carla raised her hand high in the air. Me, but I feel better now. Sorry, Muggs, but there's some evidence in that car, and I can't risk leaving it parked out here on the street all night. Muggs held out his hand for the keys. I handed them over, and we both watched Carla crawl into the back seat on her hands and knees with her ass in the air. Carla, you're sleeping at my place tonight. I don't think staying at your place alone is a good idea. Carla sighed sleepily and stretched out on the back seat. I just love you, Morneau. She said it casually enough, but I noticed Muggs glance at me out of his peripheral vision. 
I rolled down the window and breathed in the cold air. That's what's known as last call, love, buttercup. You'll be a little clearer on that in the morning. The snoring already hacking its way from the back of the car was enough to assure me she'd have no memory of saying it tomorrow. Unfortunately, I wasn't drunk enough to have the same good fortune.